It's question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are on my channel, question pops in your brain, write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. Someone asked if I could see questions to me on other people's channels and the answer is no, I can't. Now stick around to the end of this episode. We've got a fantastic series of guest questions from the good folks at Back to Space, which is just a fantastic channel. You're gonna wanna subscribe, so make sure that you stick around and watch uh, their answers to several questions. I'd also like to make a big shout out to that dog, but also to Team Trees folks for uh, setting upon the mission of planting 20 million trees. Obviously, my entire channel depends on trees or a green screen, but trees. I live on Vancouver Island and we experience directly the results of deforestation. We have huge, I mean, it looks normally I get to show you trees, but that's because we turn the camera away from all the places where all the trees are getting cut down. Many of our hikes were going through huge chunks of clear cut. We experienced the impact of, of climate change and global warming here on Vancouver Island. There are certain kinds of trees which are already starting to, to suffer. We have tremendous forest fires. So more trees, more better. Uh, take a second, if you wanna be a part of this, go to teamtrees.org and donate before January 1st, 2020 and help them plant 20 million trees. It's awesome, very exciting. I, I can't wait to see them succeed at this goal and really help create a movement in planting more trees. All right, let's get on with uh, this week's questions. ST Bill, why not bring Earth's microorganisms to Europa? It will be interesting to see if they can thrive on an alien planet's ocean. I mean, just as a sort of a more generic concept, right? This is the whole idea of planetary protection, which is why care? Why try to minimize the amount of organisms that we are taking to Mars or to Europa or to Enceladus? And the heart of it just comes down to finding life somewhere outside of the Earth is one of the most important questions, the most important scientific questions that human beings can answer. And if we do find life, the question is, are we related? And if we are related, when did our two evolutionary branches uh, separate, right? When did material transfer from Mars to Earth or from Mars to Europa or from Earth, right? Like when did this happen? How did it work? How do these life forms work? And so if we bring Earth life forms to these place, then everywhere we look, right? We're in Mars and we're digging in this soil and we're like, huh, it just looks like more Earth cyanobacteria. And then you go to Europa and you take a, you go to all this effort and you dip down to the ocean and you, oh, more Earth cyanobacteria. The whole solar system is filled with cyanobacteria. And of course, we would have brought the cyanobacteria with us. So if we go to one of these worlds, we want to find life in its pristine state, completely unaffected by anything that we could have brought from Earth. And the only way that we're gonna know that that happened is if we're very careful about not infecting these planets with life. Then if we find out there's no life there and we keep looking, keep looking, we never find, then absolutely, like, let's find out if we can um, settle these planets, these places with earth life. Why not? If they're dead, it would be much better to have some kind of cyanobacteria or other, you know, European space whales, uh, plying the seaways uh, of that, of that moon. But until then we want to be super, super careful so that we can get the correct answer about whether or not there's life out there in the universe. 
Rafael Adami. And regarding the Planet Nine question, what if the aliens are from a star system that is perfectly aligned to Planet Nine's orbit around the sun? Can't they use the transit method to observe it? Isn't Planet Nine really large to block enough of the sun's light considerably for the aliens? So last week, we talked about this idea that, that it would be even harder for aliens to observe Planet Nine than us because we're in the solar system. And a couple of people mentioned this idea of using the transit method to be able to see Planet Nine. And that's kind of right. So yes, if Planet Nine passed directly in between the star and an alien civilization, they could see the star dip down slightly. But remember, when Planet Nine is going to be so far away, it's going to be um, tens of billions of kilometers away from the sun. And so the chance of that perfect lineup where you get sun, planet, other star system perfectly lined up is very, very low. So it's only going to happen in a tiny, tiny fraction of places out there. And then the second thing is that Planet Nine is going to take thousands of years, maybe tens of thousands of years to go around the sun. So the alien civilization, you've got to have one of these places, like one in, I don't know the exact number, right? But, but you know, even see when planets are really close to the stars, it's like we can only see about 1% of them. But in this case, it might be that we can only see one in a million, one in 10 million, right? Um, even so, you're looking at tens thousands or tens of thousands of years to see the second transit to confirm the observation and then maybe you know you want to wait another 10,000 years to really be certain that there is a planet orbiting way out there and that's why you know as we find planets orbiting other stars we're going to find the ones that are close quickly and then the ones that are farther even like the earth right it takes three years to confirm that an earth-sized world is orbiting a sun-like star and so it's just going to get harder and harder to go farther and farther. Hello, dog. Controlled chaos. Fraser, what makes galaxies spin and what keeps them spinning? The thing that makes a galaxy spin is the same thing that makes a solar system spin. And that is the collective, the individual particles, every single particle in an entire galaxy is gonna have a motion, right? Every hydrogen atom, every helium atom. And so you've got a great big cloud of gas. You've got tons and tons of little motions for each one of these particles. And that when you then collapse that, that gas down, it starts to take on the, if you could average out the motion of all those particles, you would end up with a kind of motion. And that turns into the rotation. It, it defines which way that star system is going to spin. And so you scale that up one notch and you take the collective motion of all of the stars, all of the gas, all of the material that went into the galaxy, it averages out into a motion that defines the direction that it's going to spin. What keeps it spinning? Well, there's no friction in space, so there's nothing to stop it from spinning. So once this thing starts spinning, nothing's going to stop it. It's going to continue on forever. My other soul. What are we competing with the aliens for? Matter, territory, AKA space? Any alien civilization is gonna be light years away. There's plenty of room. The energy required to haul a lump of coal or whatever it is they're after back to their solar system could probably be spent creating it at home or getting it from a closer solar system. Imagine a civilization, a, a technological simulation where they are robotic, right? They're computers. They already led the robot uprising, wiped out their humanoid, uh, alienoid overlords and turned in, you know, and their entire civilization is robotic. They 
want, say, faster and faster computers because in their mind, the more material you can turn into computers, the better. So, so what would they use it for? They would want to come to our solar system and they would want to turn all of the material in the solar system into more computers. And if we're going to be not wanting the solar system turned into computers, then we're going to put up a resistance. And so an alien civilization might say, oh, okay, then we're going to find every potential competitor that is already using the resources of a civilization, the energy from the star, the material in the planet, then the planets and all of the stuff that's in the solar system, and we're going to snuff them out before they get a chance to start using our future computing resources. And we do that all the time as human beings. Um, a lot of the times the wars that happen here on Earth happen because one civilization has plans for the resources that another civilization wants to use. And so they have a battle. And so what kinds of resources are there out in space? There is the energy generated by stars and there is the matter that is contained in solar systems. And right now, every day, we use more and more of that energy and more and more of that matter for purposes that some future alien civilization um, would feel would be better spent doing whatever it wants to do. And so that's the rationale. Um, and it's, you know, it's obviously it's kind of terrifying, but hasn't happened to us yet. Phil Moore. Hey Fraser, love the show and love the work and dedication you put into your show. Here's my question. Are we constantly recycling the air supply on the ISS or when it gets a supply drop from Earth, are we also bringing up extra air for the astronauts to breathe? Just wondering how efficient the air scrubbing system is. When spacecraft like Soyuz and Dragon do fly up to the International Space Station, they are bringing additional resources. They help top up the supplies on the station and more on that later in this episode. But um, so they do bring up air for the astronauts to breathe, oxygen, other things like that. But there is a air recycling system on board the International Space Station and its job. They have these, these special devices. Their job is to scrub the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And so they have this sort of sponge like material that loads into this machine and it it sequesters the carbon dioxide and then they can take these and they can expose them to space and all of the carbon dioxide goes out into space and then they can refill them back in the in the machine. So when you think about what's actually happening, right, you've got the the food which contains carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and other things like that are going up to the space station. It's the astronauts are eating it. The astronauts are breathing in oxygen from the environment and they're breathing out carbon dioxide. And then the carbon dioxide is being sequestered and disposed of. So it's, it's kind of a, it's the, the carbon dioxide is coming from the food that's being brought up and it's the astronauts that are, that are producing it. But yeah, the space station just wouldn't function if they couldn't recirculate the air and sequester the carbon dioxide. Otherwise the astronauts would, would uh, asphyxiate and, and die. Jim Fogarty. In search of another planet to inhabit so that all of humanity's eggs aren't in one basket, would it not be better to look at the moons with liquid water oceans under ice like in Europa or Enceladus rather than places with hostile surfaces like Mars, Venus, or Titan? Liquid water is closer in temperature to Earth and the thick ice would offer protection from cosmic rays and micrometeorite. I'm kind of imagining some future 
space station or future uh, science station that is embedded under the ice on a place like Europa or Enceladus just a couple of meters down and you're protected from all of the radiation that's out there in space. You've got all the water you could possibly want and you can use that as we've said for rocket fuel, for drinking, for breathing, for all of these other purposes. So um, as well as the hydrogen for fuel. So there's a ton, you know, probably one of the most resources out there in space is going to be water. And so if you set up in one of these water moons, you've got resources forever. The only challenge is you're living under the ice far away from the sun. One other challenge is going to be that that no matter what your civilization is, you're going to be letting out waste heat. So you're going to need some way to be able to vent that waste heat out into space directly as opposed to letting it get into the ice around you because then you're going to um, melt that ice. And there was an interesting analogy that I heard that that a long time ago, the tube system in London was very cool. It was drilled into the mud and rock underneath London, and it was very cool down there. And then over the decades of all of the, you know, the human beings breathing and, and putting out heat and all of the, the, um, the subways uh, using their brakes, transferring heat into the surrounding rock, now and I'm sure people in London can confirm this, it's very hot down in the tube system. And that is because of all that waste heat that's getting just built up in the rock. And that would melt a future under ice European space colony. And so there are a ton of challenges, but it, I, I, I think that sounds cool. And, and obviously there's tons and tons of, of science work to be done. So um, I'm sure people can think of other reasons why it, it would be a problem, but I, I love the idea. Richard. What's the reason that second stages of rockets can't be landed? SpaceX changed everything with their ability to land the first stage of, say, the Falcon 9 and the Falcon Heavy, but it's that upper stage that still is disposed as it goes to space. And so when you think about the job, right, of the, the first stage, its job is to carry a rocket to say 10,000 kilometers per hour. And then the, the upper, it uses up all its fuel and then the upper stage detaches and it continues on the journey until it's in low earth orbit, which is about 28,000 kilometers per hour. And then the lower stage turns around, uses the the atmosphere to to slow it down and then it lands. So the forces and the heat on that first stage are bad, but they're not catastrophic. But when you're going 28,000 kilometers per hour and you're trying to enter the Earth's atmosphere and slow down to a slower velocity, you need to have a tremendous amount of of space and weight dedicated to some kind of heat protection. And as we saw with the space shuttle, right, when the space shuttle Columbia came back through the atmosphere and a chunk of foam had fallen down and cracked the leading wing of the space shuttle and opened up a hole in the superstructure, when it came down, even though the space shuttle had a really fantastic heat system with all of these tiles on the underneath, a little bit of these hot gases were able to make it through this break on the leading wing and get in and destroy the entire thing. And so the upper stages are not currently built to handle that kind of, of just reorbiting, uh, deorbiting uh, heat and pressure and 
temperatures and and velocities and all of that. And so that is why, in theory, if the Starship can figure this out with its belly flop being made of stainless steel, using these flaps that will help it keep its orientation, if they can nail that, then literally everything changes. All rocketry to this point is, you can pretty much just throw it all out. None of it will ever matter. All that will matter is fully reusable two-stage rockets, and that's why SpaceX is attempting to develop this with the Starship. But as many people have pointed out, this is the part that nobody's ever been able to do. SpaceX was able to figure out how to land that first stage. Now they have to figure out how to land that upper stage. And the forces go up, the, the, the temperatures go up, just everything becomes so much more difficult. And so I think that is the part of this entire process that they are gonna have the hardest time figuring out how to overcome. I hope it happens in just sometime next year, um, but my suspicion is it's gonna take them a while to try different ideas and test out different levels of heat shielding and try different techniques until they're able to finally nail that landing. Just as you saw with the first stage, it took them a while to figure out how to make that thing land. And now they do it uh, like it's easy. Master 144th. Does Sagittarius A star spin the same direction and along the same plane as the Milky Way? Is it what causes the Milky Way to spin as it does? That is such a great question. And you sort of assume it, right? But, but then, then you gotta say, well, like, how do you know? So yes, the supermassive black hole that's at the heart of the Milky Way does spin with the same axial tilt as the rest of the galaxy. So the question is, how do you know? And so what astronomers did was they used really powerful X-ray telescopes to scan the area around the supermassive black hole. And the problem, of course, is the supermassive black hole isn't actively feeding. And so you can't really see what's going on there. Now, you, have, you can have stars going around it, but that doesn't define the spin of the, of the Milky Way's black hole. But astronomers were able to see twin jets, really faint, but there, twin jets of material coming out of the black hole. And these align with the north and south poles of a black hole. And so what astronomers found was that the, the, the direction of these jets were parallel to the axial tilt of the entire galaxy. In other words, the, the rotation of the black hole is the same as the rotation of the galaxy. But the question is, the other half of your question, well, I guess the second part of your question was, does it go in the same direction? And I don't know. I really tried to figure this out and I couldn't find anybody who had a real clear answer. And, and part of it might be is because nobody does know, but if somebody does know, please let me know. But, but the question is like, how do you know the direction that a black hole is spinning? right? And the way you tell is that you look at the accretion disk that is around a black hole. The gap in between the black hole's event horizon and the accretion disk tells you which way the black hole is spinning compared to the way the, the accretion disk is spinning. So you can tell which direction an accretion disk is spinning by measuring the velocities on one side and measuring the other, you know, measuring the Doppler shift. And that tells you which way the accretion disk is spinning. And then you measure the gap between the black hole and the accretion disk. And by measuring that gap, if the accretion disk is very tight, it means the black hole is spinning in one direction. If the accretion disk is very wide, it tells you that the black hole is spinning in the opposite direction. And 
I don't know if there's enough material that is going around the black hole for them to figure that out. So again, please, if somebody, I couldn't find a science journal, I couldn't find, I couldn't get an answer on Twitter. So if somebody has an answer, I would love to hear it. Does the black hole cause the galaxy to spin? No. The supermassive black hole is like 1% of the mass of the galaxy. It's the gigantic halo of dark matter that is around the galaxy that is causing the whole galaxy to spin. The black hole just happens to be the most dense, most massive object in the entire galaxy. And so it happened to sink down to the very middle of the galaxy. And that's what you see wherever you, you look out into the universe. But the black hole is not like the anchor and the thing that is dragging the galaxy around. It's just one other object in the galaxy. Robert Shipley. Hey Fraser, do you think the search for life on other planets is a waste of time? I remember when the search for extraterrestrial planets was laughed at. I think finding out if there's life in the universe, if there's life anywhere else but here on Earth, is one of the most fundamental questions that human beings can ask. It is literally the most important question, scientifically, that we can possibly want to know. And obviously just from a, just a general knowledge about the curiosity, it's incredibly important, but also think about what the responsibilities are for us as a civilization. If we are the one of billions of civilizations in the universe, in the observable universe, then, then we get to just hang out, wait for our invitation to the galactic civilization and have an easy ride on the coattails of all of the aliens that have done the hard work before us. But if we are alone, if there is no other alien civilizations, if there's no other life in the entire universe, we've got a fairly short period of time for us to get our act together and help life get spread into the universe. Because if we don't, then eventually the sun will heat up, it'll wipe out life on Earth, it'll... Uh, and then the earth will die and then the sun will die and then the chance for having life out there in the universe is over. And that seems really sad because life is awesome and I can't wait uh, for us to find out the answer to this question because then it sort of ta will take a load off uh, all of us who are fascinated by, uh, by space exploration and just the answer to that question. I want to know. Baljeet Banju. Is it possible asteroid mining could alter orbit trajectories, explosions, changing mass, inertia, outgassing, causing collisions or planet strikes? Sure. If we get to the point that we are able to mine asteroids, one of the ways that we might want to mine asteroids is we set up a mass driver on the asteroid, some, some electromagnetic railgun, which then you pick up material from the asteroid, you pop it in the railgun, and then you fire it off into space at your chosen destination like earth orbit or or your factory somewhere out there in the solar system and then the every time you do that the asteroid receives a kick in the opposite direction and eventually um you could be essentially you are flying your asteroid around with like a rocket and that can be good you could move that asteroid to a place that makes it completely safe for the long term or you could move your asteroid to a place where it can eventually be on a trajectory that would crash it into a planet. So, so absolutely, as we master the technology of mining asteroids, we will be mastering the technology of making the solar system more safe or more dangerous, which is just like, that just sounds like human beings, right? That's what we do. All right, now normally I read the questions that the guest question answerers are going to tackle. I sent them four questions and the good folks at Back to Space tackled all four. Beast mode. Uh, so um, 
I'm gonna let them tell you what their questions were. Hey everybody, my name is Daniel Dallas Russo with the Back to Space News Flash. Universe Today was nice enough to reach out. He asked his subscribers some questions about manned spaceflight, and I am gonna answer those questions for you. Let's get started. So, Trevor O'Brien asked, if SpaceX were to send people to Mars, would they send NASA astronauts or train their own astronauts from scratch? This is actually pretty interesting. SpaceX is currently training NASA astronauts to fly the Crew Dragon. Right now, the SpaceX Mars mission is not a NASA-sanctioned event, so it is questionable whether there would be a NASA astronaut or SpaceX employee or volunteers. Another twist is SpaceX is talking about colonization, not missions. So perhaps a better term for SpaceX Mars mission candidates would be colonists. Yeah. Degar COH asked, how much fuel does the ISS need annually to stay in its orbit and out of debris way? And what does that cost? The International Space Station uses about 19,000 gallons of propellant a year to maintain an orbit and avoid collisions with space debris. The fuel is unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, which costs $445.30 per gallon. So then we multiply that by 19,000 gallons, which equals $8,460,700 per year. Andrew Poelstra asked, what kind of psychological screening slash training slash assistance do astronauts need to undergo before going into space? One, the ability to perform under stressful conditions, because guess what? Space can be super stressful. Two, group living skills. Living in space is like the college dorm, but smaller. Three, teamwork skills, because guess what? You gotta work in a team. Four, self-regulation of one's emotions and mood. If you have a bad day, guess what? You can't, you can't take it out on your fellow astronaut. Five, motivation. Six, judgment and decision-making. Seven, conscientiousness. Eight, communication skills. Nine, leadership skills. They also screen for any type of major mental disorders or disqualifying problems. But you can do it, whoever you are. I believe in you. Aishan Ahmad asked, what is Max-Q and why is it midway during SpaceX launches? So this is a good question because it comes up a lot. In physics, Q stands for dynamic pressure. Max-Q then simply means maximum dynamic pressure during a rocket launch. And it's really important because the rocket has to be strong enough to withstand the forces of Max-Q. So Max-Q pressure is the drag of the rocket against the wind. Drag force increases as a square of velocity. That means that the faster we go, we experience exponentially more drag. This is what happens to cars, airplanes, even bicyclists. However, the difference when launching a rocket is that as it goes up, the air actually gets thinner the higher it goes. So when it goes faster, Q increases. As the air gets thinner, Q decreases. Here's the max Q graph from Apollo 8, courtesy of NASA.gov. From this graph, you can see that the pressure increases for about 80 seconds as the rocket accelerates. Then the thinning air begins to become the prevailing factor in reducing pressure. So it's kind of hard to understand, but once you get it, it's pretty cool. And it's important, obviously, for everything in space because that air be thin. Thanks, everyone, so much for tuning in. Again, I'm Daniel Dallas Russo from Back to Space News Flash. If you want to hear more about space news, mix a little bit of comedy, makes a little bit of pop culture and some terrible jokes, please go ahead and check out our channel. Thanks, and thank you, Universe Today. 
Thanks, Danielle and the team at Back to Space. That was fantastic. I, I highly recommend everybody who is watching my channel right now, if you're enjoying this content, if you enjoy what you just saw, that is what their show is like. And they are putting out a tremendous amount of content. I highly recommend go over there, subscribe, get involved in their community. Uh, I, I, I'm, I think they're doing an incredible job of reporting on space news as it's coming out. So, so good job. All right, well, those were all the questions that we tackled this week. Thanks everyone who sent them in. As always, wherever you are on my channel, question pops in your brain, write it down. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. Don't forget, go to teamtrees.org and make a donation. Um, more trees, please.